Welcome back to the show. We're about to learn the secret sauce. Excellent. Yeah, well, you've, you've been doing a lot of interviews. I actually saw interviews that you've done in the last year about Builder, which you're here representing. Yes, uh, I try. I mean, it's kind of my job, right, is to go out and to represent and then make people aware of who we are and what we do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I want to get to Builder and how you got sure. to building that. But you have quite the Silicon Valley story um, where you created Angular. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know why, but I was always interested in frameworks. And if you think about it, what a framework is, it's just a thing that's responsible for marshalling data between a database and a user, right? And yeah. so um, I used to build web applications, and all the web apps were essentially the same. And so sooner or later, you're like, ah, oh, I need to automate some of this stuff, and this is where frameworks come in. And you know, people think that AngularJS was a, actually the first framework, but actually it was not. I built a few before then oh, that I'm... nobody has ever heard of. I actually didn't even release them. So it was okay. only kind of like for a personal... Did you name them, put them in GitHub um, repos, anything like that? I don't even think they were in the repos. I think back in the day we were using SVN. Okay. And you know, I think RCS or something. Like we we're talking like back before even GitHub even existed. Um, but it was a good learning experience because you know you kind of figure out what you want, what you don't like, et cetera. But um, AngularJS definitely was kind of a at the right moment, I think, at the right point in time. Because, you know, the competition at that point was like backbone and jQuery and you know, backbone. Uh, was good for its time, but it was kind of clunky, right? It was kind of complicated to use. And so AngularJS, I think, hit a stride. And the interesting thing about AngularJS was that originally it wasn't meant to be for developers. Okay. It was meant to be for like web designers, right? And this is why AngularJS really cared a lot about making it simple. But it turns out that if you make it simple for uh, you know non-developers, then developers also enjoy it. And so I remember we had this landing page on AngularJS website where you know it's like a to-do app or something like that, where you can just interact with it, and the, the markup was shown directly there, and so a lot of people just got blown away. You know, like what? I can just add a little bit of markup into the HTML, and all of a sudden I have a reactivity. That's kind of cool. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah, and so did it start inside of Google? Um, I started on in kind of like my free time. Um, yeah. You know, I don't know if it's inside outside Google. It was basically my free time project of, that I was just passionate about, and I was kind of working on it. Um, Eventually, uh, I kind of showed it to a few people at Google, and they were like, "Hey, this looks interesting. We, you know, maybe we could use it." And so it got kind of sucked in to Google, and kind of Google took over it. Um, and you know, it it took a long, a lot of effort, you know, from having a kind of a toy project on the side to actually having something that you know it's releasable and used by other people. So, what was the timeline between your sort of little pet project you worked on to now it is? The thing that um, AngularJS was at least a year. At least like, a year. It takes a it takes a quite a lot of time and effort. I mean, the original ideas are relatively simple to put together and execute on. It's the documentation, yeah. you know, trying all the different use cases, realizing that this particular thing that you thought is going to work isn't going to work. Um, it, a lot of it is around use cases. You're basically learning with the customer. You think you have a solution, and then a customer tries to use it, and then they like give you feedback saying like, "Well." I'm running into this problem or that problem. This isn't really solved. And then you kind of have to scratch your head and you know, either decide like, yes, this is a domain of the framework or you say like, actually, no, I don't think framework should own this, right? Okay. Yeah, so I, I want to take a, a step before this too as well because I realized we didn't even properly intro you. So uh, do you want to introduce to the audience who you are and sort of what you're doing today? Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Ishko Hebri. Um, I'm a CTO at Builder.io. 
uh, I guess I'm known for AngularJS, Angular, and now for Quick. Uh, so that's kind of my thing. Actually, before even AngularJS, I was uh, doing a lot of blog posts on testing. Uh, and uh, so I have actually quite a lot of stuff on YouTube about like, you know, what is the best way to test your application? I was trying to convince, this wasn't, this wasn't a day when um, people were debating whether testing was a good idea. Yeah, specifically in JavaScript or just in web? Uh, this was uh, in, I guess, web overall. I came from a Java background, so the okay. whole, most of it was actually in Java. Got it. Um, and I slowly kind of transitioned from Java to JavaScript. Okay, and then so how did you get to... So we, we got to like the Angular story, but how did you get to Google? Like, what was the what was your role there? Um, okay, uh, actually, it, it's kind of strange because my background is actually computer engineering. In other words, I was uh, you know I, when I studied in school, I studied chip design. Okay, you know layouts and transistors and things of that sort. And so when I graduated, I somehow ended up at a company that did embedded systems. So I, I did software like for printers, like not, not as a driver, but actually the, the software that runs on a printer that does like PostScript and things. And then slowly the company, you know, kind of realized, hey, internet is a thing. We should probably like retrain our employees. And so they retrained everybody on using like B2B e-commerce software. I think Ariba was a big thing back in the day. I don't know if they're still around. Oh, not even sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so I kind of came into web world and databases. And for a long time, I was just a backend person. So when I finally joined um, Google, I was a backend developer. So, so servers, Java, talking to databases and things of that sort. And I slowly kind of been transitioning over to the web. And these days, in the last decade or so, I've been primarily just JavaScript these days. So then you're a backend developer and uh, asking a question again, like what was your role that you brought this Angular thing into Google? Like, were you working with web designers there? Ah, no, actually, I was um, working on an application, I think it was called Feedback. Okay. Or something of that sort. <laughs> That's a very generic idea, application. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it would be like a little tiny um, icon in the corner of an existing application. And if the user would discover there's some kind of a bug or something in the application, they could click this button. And this button would like present a UI that says like, hey, what were you doing? What was the bug? What did you expect yeah. to, you know, kind of a thing. So it was for us to collect feedback from our users. And this application was written in Google Web Toolkit. Um and it was kind of hard to work with, right? Like the compilation story took forever. So every time you change something, you had to compile and take several, you know, I don't know what it was, but it was certainly many, many seconds, if not minutes kind of a thing. So it was hard to just have a quick iterative process, right? Plus you didn't have any kind of declarative way of saying like, I want a button. No, no, new button, right? Yeah. And then of course, styling it was a problem and so on. And, and was this written? So Google WebKit, is that not... Java or JavaScript? It is Java. It okay. It's um, Google WebKit was an interesting technology. It is so like an applet. No, it is you write code in Java, and then it, the compiler translates it from Java to JavaScript. Okay. So I, I think maybe we could talk about history of JavaScript. <laughs> yeah. I think what's interesting is that if you go back far enough, uh, basically people or most developers didn't consider JavaScript to be a real language. Yeah. Right. And for the longest time, they would poo-poo on it and be like, this is not a thing. This is a scripting thing, you know, like use a professional language. And so there are a lot of efforts at the beginning that basically said, let me give you a proper language and then we will somehow transpile it over. Right. And so Java, uh, Google Up Toolkit was one of these efforts. It was actually not a project started at Google. Google acquired it. It was a startup. 
And the idea was you write your application in Java and then the compiler translates it over to JavaScript. The problem is it like it ni nice in theory, but in practice, there is always gotchas. You know, there is the compilation is never perfect. The fact that the semantic meaning doesn't match, you know, like the, if I say A plus B in Java, it has a different meaning than an A plus B in JavaScript. Like if you're two numbers, the meaning is the same. Yeah. But what if it's a number in an array? What if it's two arrays? What if it's a string and a number, right? Like, and all of these things matter because the meaning of what it means to add a number to a string in Java is very different than what it means to add a string and a number in JavaScript. And so you would run into all kinds of like weird corner cases like that. Wow. Okay. So you have this Google WebKit that's yeah. uh, this Java compiled into JavaScript. Yeah, yeah. And so that sounds like an awful experience, but... It, it yeah, probably so worked it worked and it was. And this is where uh, Angular came in because I remember I got frustrated and I went to my manager and I said, you know, this Google Web Toolkit thing, it's it's just a pain. Like, I don't want to do this. And I'm working on the side on this project. I didn't have a name. I, I'm not sure it was called Angular at that point yet. Actually, it was actually called Angular at this point. Uh, I have this side project that I'm working on and I bet you I could redo all of this UI in a couple of weeks. And so he called my bluff and said, okay, show me. <laughs> and so it took me a couple of weeks to rewrite it. And there it was, like the whole UI was redone in, in Angular or the, what you know, eventually became Angular. And it kind of made an impression, right? Like the fact that you had multiple people working man months on this project. And then, you know, this one person comes along and then rewrites it in, in a couple of weeks. Like you're talking man years versus couple of weeks. Like that's a huge difference in, in productivity. Um, and so people kind of paid attention to that. And, uh, you know, we kind of started uh, Angular. One of the things at this point was that Angular wasn't really a framework. It was kind of a hodgepodge of different ideas. And so it took a while for it to be turned into a framework. But I know um, the, the manager, Brad, was... Uh, was very supportive for us to give it a try and turn it in. And it took a while, but eventually, you know, about a year later, we had a 1.0 release that we kind of set off in the wild and it kind of took off because people saw the value in kind of having this mixture of declarative and imperative code. Yeah, yeah. And I was one of the sort of beneficiaries of that because when I learned JavaScript early days, the first my first full-time role in San Francisco was an Angular app. And I was like, oh. All these pieces sort of fit together. Mm -hmm. I know what how to do. At the time, directives was like a thing. I'm trying to like components. What those came a little later, uh, but I was doing Angular JS at that point. And what was a thing like? It was at Google, but like what made it sort of now every like I, when I think of like big enterprises in the Southeast, they're all doing Angular. When I think of like the Midwest, they're all doing Angular. So like, what was the thing that sort of uh, took off? That it was like, oh wow, we want to do this, and now we're going to make this huge ecosystem. Um, I think it was uh, just the right time. Like there was really nothing else at that time available, right? You would either do something like Backbone or jQuery, right? Or Angular. And so like, I think Angular was just in the right time and it could just take off. Now it had lots of cool ideas. One of the goals, I think one of the inspiration for Angular was that I saw um, Gmail and I saw like, hey, you could do everything on the client and it kind of blew my mind. And so, uh, but Gmail was like handcrafted at the time. There was no framework. Like people just like kept writing JavaScript until it looked like Gmail, right? Um, and so I said, well, can we, can we have something like Gmail, but in a simpler way, you know, so you don't have to do so much work. Uh, and so that was part of the inspiration. But 
you know, there's a, there's a big difference between um, like Angular and React in that Angular has these roots, which are, um, it was really meant for web developers, right? In other words, it, the way you program Angular is through HTML, right? Um, and that's why Angular has things like uh, components and directives. These are all mechanisms by which you can declare yeah. new um, attributes or so that you can use inside of your HTML to, to give them behavior, right? Um, React took a different approach. You know, React took an approach of like, no, 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 it's primarily an application. It's primarily code. And yeah, it produces you know HTML versus AngularJS apps were primarily HTML to which you could attach code to. Yeah, and I actually had an opportunity to talk to Evan Yu, uh, who did work at Google for a time and did a lot of Angular at that point. And even when I think of like Vue, same deal, like HTML, that's your primary interaction point. And uh, it is quite different between is, the yeah. two. Uh, and I, I guess I, th my question, you mentioned React, because like I, I mentioned that uh, how big Angular is like in enterprises, but I'm sure because this is on YouTube, people are like, oh, how, is that, how would you even say Angular is as big as you said it is? React is king or whatever. Like what made that transition where now people think of React as like the, the sort of... Yeah, I think Angular and AngularJS is very much for client-side render applications. In other words, it's not really, there's no really good uh, service app pre-rendering story. Yeah. And I think where React got an edge is that there is a relatively good pre-rendering story, especially with Next.js. And so if you just browse the web, you are more likely to see um, React app be you know, facing outwards without um, without a login screen, right? So if you have a you know non-logging screen application that faces outwards, anybody can show up and use, you're more likely to, to for it to be a React application than it is Angular. And I think part of that like skews people's perception of just how popular Angular is. Once you yeah. go behind a login screen, uh, I think Angular has a significant chunk of the market share. Uh, but you know, React is amazing. Like re one thing that I enjoy about React is that they really made it simple. And it's hard to uh, just under uh, overstate just how important the simplicity is. Yeah, um, and I think React got that one right. Yeah, and like at, at the end of the day, like you built a great developer experience with Angular, mm -hmm. and Angular still has tons of adoption in enterprise. But you did make the decision to build Quick. So, like, what was the what was the thing that that brought you to to build what Quick is today? Yeah. Um, so back in like I think 2019, sorry, 2019, <laughs> let me get the date right. I was giving a talk in NGConf and uh, it was a keynote, and there I was kind of talking about the future of web apps. And the thing I wanted to kind of express is like, hey, we kind of have this performance problems, and it's not just a React uh, Angular performance problem. It's it's uh, with everybody, React, Vue, and so on. And the basic performance problem is that well, there's just too much JavaScript being sent to the client, and it's not as much of a problem as sending the bytes because they're relatively fast networks. Is that these bytes have to be executed, right? And the problem with executing all these bytes is that this is at the beginning when there is no JIT, right? JIT kicks in later. Um, and so you're basically interpreting this huge, vast quantity of JavaScript um, in an interpretive mode. And um, it, it's slow, especially on a mobile device, especially on a slow network, right? And so the question was like, well, what could we do? You know, how do we think about the application differently in order to just get the size down? And so I started with this kind of a mental exercise of like, well, what would the world look like 
if there would be no JavaScript delivered at the beginning, and then as you use the application, the JavaScript gets streamed, you know, on as needed basis. Think about it, kind of like watching a movie, right? Like you don't download the whole movie before you watch it. You 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 download the first few um, seconds, right? And yeah. then as you're watching it, more stuff downloads. Now it's a little more complicated with applications because they don't have a linear path through them, right? So it's more like watching a movie that's like choose your own adventure as you're clicking things around. But like it's kind of the same thing, you know. And so. Quick was kind of the exercise of like, well, how do we get there? What do we need to do so that we don't have this world where I can't do anything with my application until, um, you know, all this JavaScript downloads and executes. It's not just downloading. It's the, also the execution parts that is kind of the, the problem, right? And so we call this hydration. Yeah. Uh, hydration is the, the, the word that, you know, like when it's a problem, then you give it a name and then you relabel it as a feature. So yeah. a lot of people think of hydration as a feature, but really it's, it's, a, it's a workaround for the fact that, um, you know, we need the, the, the framework has to recover the application state and information about where the listeners are, you know, and it does so by re-executing the application from the beginning. Right? Yeah. That's what hydration is. And so quick is kind of the exercise of like, well, how do we make the app interactive without JavaScript present and then make sure that we can download the JavaScript just in time as you're about to click on a button so that the JavaScript is waiting for you there? Okay, yeah. And I love that interaction too as well because the of like this hydration, but also I don't know, like JavaScript agnostic is like the uh, the term or you mentioned just in time with JavaScript. Basically, what I'm getting at is I built sites HTML first, mm -hmm. and it's a, it's an amazing experience. Like, uh, it's like remembering how you used to ride bikes, and uh, now you don't do it anymore because you're too old and everything hurts. It's amazing experience from the performance or from just like how are you building it? Uh, how I'm I'm building it. It's like okay. I I can just quickly throw together some HTML because I know I'm familiar with mm -hmm. this space, and I don't need to worry about what npm package I need to install to do the third thing yeah. in the chain. So um, there has been kind of a re-emergence of, of these HTML-first systems, Astro being one of them, Eleventy being another one, yeah. right? And, you know, their, their point is like, hey, we've gone too far down the line of like everything is an app. Like many, many things are not an app. It's just a static page, right? Like yeah. maybe the menu is interactive or something like that, but the rest of the page doesn't have to be interactive, right? I think the issue with today's... Um, frameworks is that they make everything into an application, right? Um, and it's not necessarily a wrong way to think about it. It's just the consequence of it is that the hydration system can't tell the difference between the static parts and interactive parts. And so the bigger the site becomes, the slower it, it is, right? Yeah. Like it has nothing to do with like how interactive the page is. It just purely has to do with how many DOM elements are on the page. Yeah, and it's, this is something, so we we applied to participate in the Octurnship program, which is GitHub. GitHub education students will be an intern for open source and other companies. And the application was build a Chrome extension that does mm -hmm. XYZ. And it was really interesting to see how people approach it because I was specifically, I don't, just build it. Like if you want to, they ask a question, what framework like you choose? And uh, the ones that were like this purely JavaScript and HTML was like, they're really elegant to look at. And they were very clever in how people interacted. But the ones that were like React with like the 37 files for the one Chrome extension that did the add the one button on the page, it was really like eye-opening to kind of understand like where people were coming from. And as a junior engineer 10 years ago, when people were like, oh, don't use a framework. I remember inter interviewing for Pinterest and I could use a framework, I had to write some JavaScript and they were test and I didn't get the job anyway. But 
I understand why people are like, oh yeah, this here's a problem, framework agnostic, build like solve the solution because you can really see how people think. Mm-hmm. And like we we did lose a bit of that when we just went all into everything as an app um, because not everything needs to have. I, pretty much everything that React gives you or Next.js gives you rather is a, a bad example because it's so easy to create a Next app and start there than to think about, do we need, do we even need routing? Like that's mm-hmm. that's like the first question I usually have, routing and login. If I don't need any of that, then I'm going to build something in Astro and maybe actually need to try. I haven't tried Quick yet, so I don't we have any reference. Need to try. Yeah. We just released the RC candidate yesterday, so okay. I'm very proud of that. Um, I think it's important to kind of look at the history of how we got here. Yeah. And if you look at it, like um, Angular was really meant to be client-side rendering, right? And I said like earlier that Angular doesn't really have a good uh, server-side rendering story. And React in that sense is the same. Like it's a client-side rendered library. And But the difference is that React got Next.js. And so somebody spent time trying to figure out how to do server-side rendering. And it's a reasonably good job that they're doing at it. Um, but the problem is, on the end of the day, React is still meant for client-side rendering, right? Yeah. You know, and that shows. And so this is, I think, why we end up in this world where like, oh, everything is an app. Because on the end of the day, React is meant for apps, right? Just yeah. like Angular is. And I think what's unique about approaches like Astro and Elementy is they say, well, actually, no, you know, there's different tools for different things. And Quick does the same exact thing. Like, if you want to build more of a blog side, then you can use MDX files for generating your content. Yeah. If you want to have interactivity, well, then you can actually build components and have that. But the nice thing out of it is that Quick owns the whole problem end to end. Right? We don't say, oh, we're just for client-side rendering. We're for client-side rendering, for server-side pre-rendering. We are for, for bundling, for breaking your code down, for serializing the data over from the server to the client, for pre-caching, for making sure that the caches are primed so that when you're ready to click on a button, you don't have to wait for a delay. Right, And this holistic end-to-end um, kind of way of thinking about it, I think is what gives Quake an edge. If you look at existing systems, it's more of a historical hodgepodge of individual technologies that really weren't meant to be uh, used together. They, they, they are used together today because you know people spent a lot of time and effort in making sure that that's the case, um, but it shows. Yeah. You know, the, the fact that uh, React requires you to do hydration, right? it shows up in the fact that like, yes, you can use React to build static sites, but the moment you have like teeniest amount of interactivity, you need to execute that JavaScript and yeah. then now React can't tell the difference between um, you know, what's static and what's dynamic and it has to just execute the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's crazy that we've got here, but it's also nice that we're able to take a step back and kind of take stock of like, okay, well, I don't need Next.js for my full-on blog. Like I'm just doing rendering markdown files. So like, how do we make this a better experience? I'm thinking this personally for BWG Live, which is my current blog, which is Next.js. Fun experience to build. Uh, interacts with like GitHub and like all my blog posts are GitHub issues. I don't even write blog posts anymore. So at this point, it's like, ah, I'm going to rebuild this thing um, and something that's HTML first. But I wanted to actually ask the question about Builder and mm-hmm. how it connects in this this journey and your story as well. So what's what's what is Builder? Ah, good question. So Builder is a uh, headless visual CMS. So I know, a bunch of words. Let me break that out. <laughs> it's a lot of buzzwords. Lots of, bu- lots of buzzwords. Okay. So headless means that you own the serving infrastructure. 
right? So if you look at something like Wix, Wix is a page builder, right? Um, you can build pages in Wix and people love it because it's easy to, to do. Uh, the problem is on the end of the day, Wix has to be served on their serving infrastructure, right? You can't build a page and then like, you know, put it into your React app, it doesn't work. And so what Builder is, is kind of like Wix, you can have a, a page builder, but you do it on your infrastructure. In other words, your engineers will type in npm install builder.io slash whatever. And now they have a pack, npm package that they which is contains components and they yeah. drop those components into their site. And wherever they drop those components, those components become uh, editable by their marketing, right? But the key thing is it's on your uh, infrastructure. And the other interesting bit that Builder has is that the, the engineers can create components in whatever the backend they let's say they create a you know using it in in, in Re react or angular they create components and they register those components with builder and now the marketing department can drag and drop those components create data binding to them you know attach them to uh, some data source or something of that sort so it's it's a uh, you can think of it as a page builder, but the moment that people have a huge aha moments are when they realize like, oh, I can have my engineering department make me a rich set of components such as a product detail page or you know, yeah. a buy button or something like that. And then I can give those rich components over to my marketing department and then they can just you know go wild and combine them in very new and unique ways. Yeah, I mean, that's that's... Clever, and this is like the the common problem because I've I've been on engineering teams where like you, it's startups you don't have like the marketing team that can support engineering. So what always becomes is oh we have a WordPress site and yes. can someone take us a, a, a sprint to go help work on the WordPress stuff? And it's like oh cool, let me stack over from what, like let me get through all the documentation of how WordPress works and how to fix this and how this hosting works. And it's like it feels like you're just in a whole other world. That, that yes, and like WordPress is still a valuable place for people to build careers on and build products on. But I feel like me as an engineer, I've moved past that, and I'm doing all this other stuff. And I feel like when you explain Builder, I'm like, oh wow, this is where I want to be when I go support the future marketing sites and and teams at Open Source or other companies. And uh, that's that's really intriguing. Like even like the whole plugin ecosystem and infrastructure. So like the headless CMS world, it, it seemed like it was all API first. Mm -hmm. Builder is now infrastructure first it's more like the ui first ui right? first okay um the the old headless cms systems are essentially glorified spreadsheets where you like you know you have yeah. fields and you can fill them in you want to change your hero image well give me a you know type in a new url over here whereas builder you just drag and drop any image you want and oh by the way if you now want to have two images well just drag two images right whereas in the headless cms systems like oh you want to have two hero images well let me talk to the uh, engineering department and they'll have to change some code to enable yeah. that right I think when you look at WordPress, WordPress is static content first, and then you can, through some tricks, add dynamic content such as a shopping cart or the current stock of your inventory or something of that sort, right? Whereas what most of the e-commerce sites are today is they're fundamentally a dynamic website which has shopping cart and content uh, in terms of like, what's the latest seller or what do I push in the personalization and so on. And oh, by the way, could I have you know, drag and drop ability in my dynamic uh, application, right? And so this is the, the niche that the builder solves, right? Like, do you have primarily static content? Well, then just go with WordPress, right? Or do you have rich, complicated, dynamic 
site, uh, really an application that is masquerading itself as a public website where people purchase and add to shopping carts and you want to play with like, oh, you know, I see you, you like, uh, I don't know, 3D printers and therefore let me push, you know, the new filament that's super nice colors or something like that. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is not so simple to do in something like WordPress. So that's kind of the difference. Okay. And then you're also not, you're not, op like WordPress, you're kind of opted into the WordPress host and like you got to deploy right. it like whatever way you want. So you can't just take WordPress and deploy it on Vercel or something like that. Yes. That doesn't work. No. Uh, and so, you know, again, like with Builder, you own your infrastructure. So you decide where you want to deploy your application. On the end of the day, we're just giving you a, a component that you installed from NPM. Right. And so that component is in React, Quick, Angular, Svelte, yeah. whatever you want. And so you, you, you just drop it, drop it into your existing code base. And the engineers own the code, right? Yeah. Versus like some other thing that you're not familiar with. Yeah. So would you even consider, like you, you mentioned the headless CMS, but like, would you even consider them as competitors? Like you're kind of moving into like a, a whole other world, like where Squarespace is your competitor or Wix is your competitor. Well, the, the the Wix and Squarespace are really meant for like moms and pops, you know, the, the end of the 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 long tail, right? Yeah. Of building sites. Uh, so those are not really our competitors because uh, you know, builder is the UI is a little too is more for advanced use cases, right? Yeah. So uh, somebody who is, you know, just wants to build a very simple website will be overwhelmed by all the features you that builder has. So it's more kind of a professional kind of a tool. I think our main customers are large e-commerce, like think like Target or Everlane or, you know, one of those big guys, yeah. right? Um, that doesn't always have to be used for e-commerce, but like typically this is the use case where, you know, you have hundreds of engineers, hundreds of marketing folks, right? There is a lot of fine tuning going on about like A-B testing the site, you know, what gives better conversions or et cetera. Um, there's a lot of data that has to be present in terms of like, what is the current inventory? What do we have in stock? What we don't have in stock? You know, what do we have surplus and we want to push more of things of that sort, right? And so that is the, the area where builder shines like yeah you could use it for building you know like a presence page but like that's really go go use vix or yeah um, you know squarespace for that that's not really what our thing is okay cool well thanks for clarifying that too as well and I, i'm super excited to see the builders only been around for maybe a couple years or maybe one year uh no no it's been i want to say close to five five oh, i've well. joined two years ago <laughs> okay wasn't even on my radar but yeah glad to see it uh i, I obviously i've seen it at, at conferences like jams.conf i mentioned this before we record uh but yeah super super excited to start talking about it and share with folks because from my previous employment uh, a couple jobs ago like i run into all the folks that are your customers so uh which is why we we cross paths yes uh last question what's like the most what's you touch a lot of technology, so mm -hmm. let's, what's the most exciting thing right now? Um, well, ChatGPT is kind of cool, right? <laughs> uh, let's talk about that for a second. I think, first of all, let me back up a second. Uh, I have this is my favorite book of all time. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, have you read this? Uh, I've heard of it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you should read it. Right, it is a, a psychologist. Uh, I believe his name is David Kahneman. He spends his whole life uh, basically posing and tricking uh, people into kind of divulging how the brain works. Yeah. You know, like like people are 
uh, you know, if you present them the question this way, then they'll behave this way. And if you present the same thing the other way, then it'll behave a different way. Even yeah. though you look at it and you go like, wait, those two things are fundamentally the same. Why should the way I present to you matter to the outcomes? Yeah. And so his point is that like, hey, people are predictably wrong. You know, like we're not correct on average. We're predictably wrong on average. Right, and so he spends a huge amount of time talking about it. And in this book, he actually makes a point that there is that we have actually two brains. We have what he calls system one, and a brain we, uh, he calls system two. And system one brain is the automatic thing that you don't even think about. You know, when you're driving a car and you like end up in, in at work because you were on autopilot and you didn't even realize that you were you meant to go to like a, a grocery store. That's system one taking over. But when you first start driving. You, you can't do that, right? It's system two, and system two is like this deliberate and effortful thing, and you're exhausted when you have to drive at the beginning. And so what we're seeing today is that if you look at it kind of more, you realize system one is literally neural nets, right? It is literally that. And so chat GPT is basically system one, and that's impressive. But the thing is, we have this thing called system two, uh, or what he calls system two, and, and the best way to kind of explain it is it's kind of like mathematical symbolic manipulator. Like it understands logic. Whereas um, ChatGPT does not, right? ChatGPT understands what people say on average about things, but it doesn't understand logic. Like it pretends to, it can do yeah. like certain things because like statistically it kind of gathered this, that if you ask this question, then that's the answer, but it doesn't fundamentally understand logic. Right. And so ChatGPT will like gladly say like ridiculous things that are not true. Like somebody just pointed out this morning saying, like, I love using ChatGPT for recipes. And so, you know, the person is like, hey, you know, what's the recipe to make yogurt? And ChatGPT gives you all the ingredients and how much to put in and what to do. And so then you ask ChatGPT, like, well, I want it only half of that much. And ChatGPT will give you good answers because enough people have asked that question that it knows how yeah. to do that. And then you say, I want to make one seventh. Garbage comes out of ChatGPT yeah. because ChatGPT doesn't understand this, right? And so when people get like freaked out about like, oh my God, the machines are coming, they're taking over the world. Like we only have half the story. Yeah. And the problem is that you can't get to where we are just by making ChatGPT better. Like there is fundamentally a different process that we don't have, right? Yeah. At ChatGPT, while it get better in terms of like the, the knowledge that it collects, it's not going to get better at um, at understanding, right? Like it doesn't fundamentally understand. It only understands like statistically, like if this is an input, then that's probably that's yeah. what the output yeah, is. Yeah, it's a good response. Yeah, I, <laughs> I I haven't had ever had to make yogurt ever, but if, if I ever need to make yogurt, I will not go to ChatGPT. <laughs> at least if I need a seventh of the yogurt recipe. <laughs> well, no, ChatGPT gets this completely wrong. Yeah. Like, it cannot do seventh. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for sharing that secret sauce, but also the, the sort of secret sauce between Angular, Builder, Quick in between. Yeah, appreciate coming through, sharing the secret sauce, and folks, stay saucy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. The Secret Sauce of the podcast produced in-house by OpenSauce, the open source intelligence platform, providing insights by the slice. If you're in San Francisco and interested in being a guest on the show, find us on Twitter at SauceOpen. Don't forget to check out OpenSauce at opensauce.pizza.